0: So this morning I want to do something slightly a little bit different. Uh, not in the books of Kings. I wanted to jump to Romans because for whatever reason I haven't been able to get this particular passage that we're going to look at out of my mind. And I figured the best way to get it out of my mind is to study it and preach it. <laughs> but I think if you were to make a list, if you, were to, if you were forced to perhaps to sit down and make a list of all of perhaps the most important chapters in the New Testament... I would hasten to say that a great many of them would be written by the Apostle Paul. Of course, he's responsible for much of what we know in the New Testament with all the letters that he has written and that we love to study and that we cherish so deeply. I think it's there's perhaps a lot of reasons for that. He was used mightily by God, but I think also too that Paul's letters and writings just are reverberating and echoing with just the most loud notes of good news, perhaps in all of scripture. He's known as the apostle to the Gentiles, but also the apostle of grace, and I think for good reason. He has a lot to say about this grace of the Heavenly Father, and he writes abundantly about it in almost every single letter. But if you were to challenge me to pick a piece of the Apostle Paul's writing that I would say is perhaps the most critical to understand and the most important to sort of bring into our lives as Christians, it might surprise you, but I would point to this particular chapter, Romans chapter 7. It's a fascinating chapter. One might call it eye-opening. Maybe perhaps you would even call it, if you read it straight through, you might even call it eyebrow-raising for some of the things that Paul proceeds to talk about. If you put yourself in the minds of perhaps a first century uh, sort of churchgoer, uh, some of the uh, the sort of assertions that Paul is going to hear make in this chapter about the law is definitely eyebrow-raising, <laughs> This idea that we're dead to it, this idea that it is no longer uh, sort of our dominator. These were scandalous notions that Paul was talking very insightfully about. But even here in chapter 7, he augments all of that talk about the law with some even more excruciating confessions about himself. And actually, all of which, at the end of it, you might be going, is Paul saved? (laughs) Some of the things that Paul talks about—that's what it leaves us with. This idea that he is so conflicted and so at war with himself. We say and question his salvation, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it's somewhat startling to hear this honesty come from the Apostle Paul. It's dreadful honesty. From this one who claims to believe in Christ crucified. Claims and writes so eloquently about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guides us and changes us and fashions us into the image of the Son of God himself. It's startling to hear, as he says in verse number 19, that the very good things that he would do, the things that he's not doing, and the things that he doesn't want to do, those are the things that he keeps on doing. Who talks like that? <laughs> Who do you know in church that so readily owns up to this very fact that they can't stop doing the things that they hate? That's what Paul is here confessing. He says basically the same thing in verse number 15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. I keep doing the things that I hate. I keep going back to it. I keep having to revert to it. I cannot even stop myself, essentially. I would hasten to say that if someone came up to you, someone from church perhaps, and started talking like this, started confessing these sorts of things, maybe maybe I'm surmising, maybe I'm judging. <laughs> you would probably be more inclined to distance yourself from that person as opposed to get closer to them. They're obviously backslidden. Something's obviously amiss with their spiritual walk. Something is wrong. We, we need to pray for that brother. We need to pray for that sister. they got to figure some stuff out. (laughs) And in fact, I would even say that if Paul were to say some of these things today in many churches around this nation, perhaps, we would be calling into question the idea that he could even be called a pastor at all. We would take him aside and tell him, you can't talk like that. People are going to get the wrong idea about what church is and, and who's allowed in church at all. Paul's words throughout all of Romans 7 sound like they don't really come from the, the good sort of solid Christians that we know and love, right? Or do they actually? In fact, as I've studied Romans 7 and Looked at this, the ways in which Paul reveals some of these startling truths about himself, but handles these startling truths about himself. I think what he does is he gets at the very nub of the gospel, the very marrow of God's grace, I think is for us right here in Romans chapter 7. See, what he does throughout all of these 25 verses, what what he has done here, I should say, has served to really perplex a lot of theologians and Bible students for centuries. Because these words, again, they seem to come from a man who is conflicted. There's a man who is struggling. He, he seems to have this heart and a soul for the things of God. And yet, by the same token, he seems to be just struggling with so much wretched sin. There's parts. Early on in Romans chapter 7 where he's talking about the law and talking about all of these ways in which we are no longer under its dominance as as according to the Old Testament. He sounds like a very learned man. He sounds like one who possesses a very depth of spiritual insights and knowledge that we could glean much from. He sounds like a teacher. And then there are other parts of this same exact chapter where we would question whether he should lead a small group Bible study. Because we're worried about what he might say. We're worried about where his faith is. And where he is in his spiritual walk. And all of sorts of things. And all of that stands in very stark contrast to even the surrounding chapters within Romans itself. And in fact I would say one of the most interesting befuddling sort of aspects of Romans 7. Is simply its placement within the letter. Things, I think, would be way cleaner, way simpler, way easier if we could just jump straight from chapter 6 right into chapter 8. And we wouldn't have to, we could just bypass all of this difficult and somewhat depressing sort of language that Paul here conveys in chapter 7. Then we wouldn't have to try and explain why he sounds like such a different man. (laughs) In fact, I challenge you, read chapter 6 all the way through. You don't have to do it now. But, and then read chapter 8. And then go back and read chapter 7. And it'll sound like a different writer almost. In chapter 6, you can go there and we'll read a couple verses from it. He sounds triumphant he sounds decisive he sounds definitive his words just roll off his tongue that yes we are free from sin free from death because of christ and now we are raised to walk in newness of life because of him listen to these words romans 6 verse 10 for in that he died jesus died he died unto sin once But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your immortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Rather yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law but under grace. And we shout amen. Paul's words are clear. <laughs> It sounds obvious. All that's left for us to do then. We who would say we believe in those things. Is then just to carry on living according as we are alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Okay sure. Sounds easy enough. We got to keep yielding ourselves as members of those who are part of the righteousness of God. And he gets even more into that in Romans chapter 8. Where he writes with just this. Very similar fervor, but even this more potent energy here about how nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We relish in those last nine or so verses where he talks about all those rhetorical questions. Can this separate us? Can this? Can this? And he ends up saying nothing. No, nothing at all can separate us. I think most of the time we think about that in terms of mayhem and trials and and suffering. But I think there's more to it there, which we'll get to in a moment. But he talks about in chapter 8 that along our way we're aided and empowered by this Holy Spirit of Christ. Who comes into us, who dwells inside of us and allows us, empowers us to walk this life in the Spirit along with him. Romans 8 verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Taking out Romans 7, you get this view of the Christian life that is very clean, very simple. The more we walk with the Spirit, the more we grow in the things of God, the more, as it says in Romans 8, 29, we are conformed to the image of his Son till eventually we find ourselves dancing and singing in glory. It's a simple progression. It's the Christian life in a nutshell, so to speak. We go from sin to faith to growth to glory. But my question, even for myself, as I've read these chapters and we know these familiar passages, does that hold up? Does that hold water with what we experience with on a daily basis? Is that straightforward sort of system of advancing from one level to the next in our spiritual walk as is sort of here presented if you just take Romans 6 and Romans 8 together does that sort of survive the scrutiny of what we experience on a daily basis? I would hasten to say no but let me put it this way. Imagine in your mind's eye the trajectory of the Christian life. What does it look like? Just picture... In your mind's eye, all the different sort of checkpoints, if you will, of what would make up a life that is inherently Christian. What do you see? I would hasten to say that if you were to put your, uh, not just your, but the most often depiction of the Christian life. Let's say we're going to put it on a graph. You know, we're good at using Excel. We can use a graph. We're going to graph it out. What does it look like? It looks like a line that looks like this. Slanted upwards. We're going, we're marching on towards Zion, right? It's a line that is perfectly straight as we go from sin and death to alive in the Spirit by grace and by faith. It's the picture that we often have. It's a view of the Christian life that I think sometimes sees faith and faith in Jesus as as we progress in holiness, right? We're progressing and we see these sorts of things almost as levels that are waiting to be achieved by us. (laughs) Maybe you've never said this before. Maybe you've never thought this before, but maybe you've carried it out. I'm, I'm a level two Christian. That person in the back, they're a level one Christian because they're sitting in the back. (laughs) I'm a level nine Christian. I've read The Purpose Driven Life 40 times. (laughs) We don't perhaps use that language. But how often do we carry ourselves in that way? I'm this level of Christian. You got to get up here on my level. We see these sort of advancements in holiness as sort of accomplishments and crowns that we can achieve for ourselves. As if we are the ones who are accomplishing it at all. We twist this sort of message of, and I would say even the beauty of discipleship in sort of this game of competitive righteousness. Where we end up. Thinking that we have somehow achieved something or accomplished something that those around us haven't. And then obviously the the obvious loser in that game, if that game exists, would be anyone who identifies with Romans 7. The struggler. No, he's, he's a level one Christian. He's been demoted. He's struggling with the things that he hates. How can, he, how can he claim to know Christ at all? How can he claim this name of Jesus? Again, maybe we would never be caught dead thinking those things. <laughs> and we shudder to even think about them. But isn't that often how we live and carry ourselves? We see perhaps a fellow churchgoer making increasingly worse decisions we question their decision making maybe we see them falling into sin and what's perhaps maybe you never met this what's our first reaction Man, glad i'm not like them i'm glad that's not me i'm not i'm not that bad i think there's a parable that talks about that right luke 18 god i thank thee that i'm not as other men like this guy praying in the back of the service <laughs> The prayer of the publican and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 talks about this very thing. He thought himself a level 31 Christian. (laughs) I'm tithing. I'm fasting. I'm going above and beyond what the law requires. God, aren't you happy with my sacrifice? Aren't you happy with how I carry myself? I'm not like this guy. I'm not like that guy in the back, that tax collector, that sinner That's the language of a Christian competitor who sees his brothers and sisters in Christ not as fellow soldiers in the armies of God, but as fellow athletes in which he is with which he is in competition. Got to beat them in my sanctification. (laughs) And I think that's precisely the notion that Paul is aiming to dismantle here in Romans chapter seven, throughout as he openly is vulnerable with his struggle some have taken these problematic words of Paul here and they've taken to sort of reinterpreting them through a more palatable lens they want to make them a little bit easier to digest so when he comes to verse 18 where he says for I know that in me that is in my flesh will have no good thing for to will is present with uh, for to will is present with me but how to perform that which is good I find not. Some in reinterpreters have taken that verse and said Paul is talking about himself before he was saved. Before the Damascus road. Before Jesus uh, so miraculously intervened and interrupted his life. This is Paul. This is his language. They, they couch this whole chapter as though it's the confessions of an unregenerate man. As just a person who's under conviction of sin before repentance and faith and redemption. And all those sorts of things that we know in, is, is inherent to the Christian life. And I would say that framing this chapter in that way allows you to sort of, again, keep that very clean, simple line going all the way to heaven. uh, uh, That sort of view of the Christian life. But I would say it's a denial of what Paul aims to communicate here. And all you have to do is look at the grammar. Look at verse 14 again. As he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I was carnal sold. No, I am carnal. Sold under sin. And even as he says in verse number 24. O wretched man that I was. (laughs) No. O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death. All of the confessions here that Paul makes, even these troublesome ones, these ones that we raise an eyebrow and lean in and say, are you all right, Paul? He's making all of them in the present tense. He's describing his current life, not the actions of a past former self before he knew Jesus, before he knew what the Bible said and Jesus, this I know and all those sorts of things. He's describing his life right now. I am carnal. I am wretched. I am a mess. That's what he's saying. He's writing this letter, he's putting it in pen, no less. I can't I can't get it right. Even though he knows all that Christ accomplished for him on the cross. In the gospel. Just read chapters five and six of Romans. He knew what Jesus did. He talks about it so robustly and so eloquently and so excitedly. And yet, even still, he has to confess here in verses 15 and 16. He's still plagued with his inescapable body of sin. As he says, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would that I do not, but what I hate that I do. (laughs) If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that is good. Because he knows, as he says in verse 17, that sin dwelleth in me. He can't seem to get out of his own way. And he hates it. He is struggling and he hates it. He keeps doing the things that he doesn't want to do. He knows what the good book says. He knows what little good boys and girls in church do and should do and ought to do. And yet, as he continues to say, For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I keep on doing. You don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you describe would say that that describes me? The things that you know are a part of what it means to be a Christian, you cannot seem to get around to doing them. And the things that you know you shouldn't be doing, you keep on doing. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you would say that that describes you this morning? Before you walked into church? think we're conscious and aware of what God's word says but we are woefully incapable of keeping it keeping its demands that's sort of the point I think we're made to see that we can't live up to it we are all yes failures we have all fallen short of the glory and of the righteousness of God Paul here is saying he's never found it to be true, that he can live up to all of the law's demands, all of the things that it tells him to do that will give him holiness and righteousness. He's tried, as he says in Philippians 3, if anyone wants to question my righteousness, my zeal, I have more. He's attempted living that way before. He's done it. And he's never found it to be freeing. He's never found it to be all that he needs it to be. There's something still missing because he was trying to live by his own means. So he says here, I found it. I cannot do it. I cannot, he says. And why is that so? Because he knows, as he is here confessed, that he isn't just the culprit of doing bad things. He's a sinner to the very core of his being. That's why he says in verses 17 and in verse 20. That sin dwelleth in me. It comes from the inside. And he's already proven it. Romans 5, 12. Wherefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And he's basically saying we're all in the same boat. This is all of us. Sin dwells inside of us. So therefore living the Christian life is not always a clean and simple case of progressively doing better. I wish that were so. I wish it were sometimes that easy, but life tells me otherwise. It's a little bit messier than that. It's that old adage, we take a step forward and then perhaps we take two steps back and then we take three steps forward and one back. It's this constant cycle of going forward and going backwards and struggling. The message of the gospel, I think, even as Paul is here saying, was never accompanied by promises of clean and simple living. Actually, in fact, I think as he's here evidencing for us, the gospel message of those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior is in fact an invitation to a life of conflict, a life of tension. If you don't like tension, I don't know what to say to you. I guess more grace to you. Of course the Christian life is inherently one of tension. We are invited into the kingdom of God and yet we still find our bodies living among the kingdom of death. That's the gospel. We are citizens of heaven and citizens of earth at the same time by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. We are living a life of, we could say, already and not yet. At the same time, we are already, if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, this is the good news. You are already justified in the eyes of God. Period is done. And yet we are not yet glorified in his presence. We are living already and not yet at the same time. We are already, yes, once and for all, Romans 6. We are already free from the penalty of sin. It's taken care of. Jesus paid it. He paid it all. The penalty of sin, done. And yet, we are not yet free from the presence of sin. Romans 7 is still there. It still lurks. It still seeps out. Once, perhaps too many. And that's precisely why the Spirit is there. He's rooting it out of us. Rooting that old man out of our lives. My friends, take comfort in this fact that we are sinners and saints at the same time. I've always been marveled at that Paul sort of using that terminology without even using it explicitly. If you remember, he's right. Remember how he writes to the church at Corinth. Remember, first Corinthians is a pretty nasty letter. He's talking about a subject that's very detestable and we would shudder to even think that 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 scandal would ever happen in a church and he's writing about it he's trying to clear out all of the badness out of that church and so that church is filled with wickedness right filled with sinners and what does he call them these very ones that he's addressing, and he's addressing this very reprehensible sin, what does he say? You are the saints of God. Sinners and saints at the same time. Conflict, tension, or we could say war. You see, until we get to glory, there will always be a war that rages inside of us. Welcome to the battlefield. <laughs> Welcome to the Christian life. It's a life of war, a life of conflict. And in fact, that's what faith is. When you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior of my sins, you are likewise declaring war on all that hates Jesus. (laughs) What does Paul say? Look at Romans 7, verse 22. For I delight in In the law of God, after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, in my inward being, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Conflict, war happening all the time. The law he knows by receiving the word of God, that this law that comes into his mind is at war with the law of his members. The law of his appendages, the law of his body, which is racked with sin. I think Paul is here evidencing what scripture elsewhere talks about, even Paul himself. This idea of this war between the old man versus the new man. Language like this appears throughout a lot of the New Testament letters. Uh, Ephesians and Colossians come to mind. Put off the old man, put on the new. This battle that appears as inherent to the Christian life. And in short, all it is, is a summary to believe all that the gospel has declared, that it is in fact true. That when the gospel says you are free from sin and death, that that is a true declaration. Romans 6 verse 6, what does Paul say? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin when Jesus was buried so were your sins that's the good news that's the good news we fight to believe but because we're sinners because we are sinners to the cores of our being what do we go up doing we go go up digging up all those old sins again (laughs) The ones that Jesus buried. We go digging back up. Trying to relish in. Trying to think that those are what is going to satisfy us. Those are the things that are going to fill us. We keep going back to that grave that Jesus walked out of so to speak. Back to that life of slavery and sin and death. And we keep doing the things we hate. We essentially keep putting handcuffs on. That's what Jesus has done. He's riddled us free from sin. Taken the handcuffs off of us. And yet we keep going back. That life is better. That's what Paul is getting at here with this war that's happening. In his heart, in his mind, in his soul. And perhaps you're familiar with that. And to me that's why what Paul says at the very end is so captivating. What does he say? What is his only recourse? O oh, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the deliverer. He's come to the end of himself, Paul asks. Nothing has worked Nothing he's tried has gotten to the roots of his issues. He keeps struggling. He keeps making progress. And he keeps falling behind. He keeps struggling. He's come to the end. Who can rid me of this? Who can rescue me of this? I cannot help myself. I cannot make myself holy or righteous or good or anything. I've tried umpteen different things and it doesn't work stench of sin still clings to him like clothes that you wear around a campfire they still smell like smoke a little bit (laughs) there's still that, that stench in the air that you can't get rid of and that's Paul I can't get rid of it but in fact this language is even more violent than that the Romans as you might know they were torture experts. If you read lots of annals of history, it almost seems that they took great delight in torturing their criminals and torturing those who are against them. The Romans did. Of course, they perfected the cross. They perfected, if you can use that language, crucifixion in very cruel and sadistic ways. But they even had this other practice, some Roman authorities did, where In order to punish a murderer, what they would do was take the victim, the body that they had murdered, and they would strap it to the murderer's life. Arm to arm, back to back, waist to waist, legs to legs. The murderer would walk around a criminal convicted of murder. Yes, he would walk around with the very person he murdered shackled to his back. Shame and, of course, Disease would quickly follow as the rotting corpse would almost meld into the life of the still living murderer. So those last days would not just be looked upon in shame. They would be stinking of putrefaction. Horrible image. But I think that's what Paul has in mind right here as he's talking about this body of this death. Death. That's the life of sin that he cannot shake. He cannot get it off his back. No matter how hard he tries, he's walking around with this body of sin that he's crumbling under the weight of. And he's tried everything. He's tried this many devotional books. He's tried getting up at 5 a.m. to read all of the scriptures that he can. He's tried journaling. He's tried praying. He's, He's tried all of these disciplines that are good and right and healthy. And he can't seem to evade or elude this body of sin that is literally crushing him. And if that's you, this is for you, this passage. If you've tried meeting the demands of righteousness on your own. If you've tried and failed and tried and failed again to battle this constant onslaught of sin in your hearts and life, sinner, saints, God in Christ is your deliverer this morning. Like Paul here says, in and of ourselves, no hope. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me? I can't deliver myself. And you as well have zero ability to rescue yourself from that sin that is so there. It's always there. It's inescapable. We're shackled by these bodies of death. You know what our only hope is? Our only hope this morning and forever is in a God who miraculously takes on a body of his own to die a death of his own in order for you and everyone else who is dying. And thanks be to God That's what he's done. Thanks be to God. That's the gospel this morning. He's taken a body to die a death for you and for me who are dying, who are being weighed down by these bodies of death. He's put himself between you and your sin. The image that I can't get out of my head is that that's who Jesus is. He's the criminal with the body of death walking around that he's been shackled to. That's what Jesus has done. Only the crime wasn't his, it was yours. The guilt wasn't his, it was yours. And had he willingly put himself between that body of death and you. So that you could be free from sin and he could take it all on himself. Even yes, for that very crowd at that scene who was laughing and mocking and spitting at him. They were having their sins paid for. And yet, it's hard to believe that, isn't it? That's Paul here in this passage. (laughs) He knows and relishes in that good news and he's fighting to believe. The good news is for you and for me that that good news is true. Trust this morning in the Holy Spirit to reapply that great and glorious gospel to your life. The good news that we just preached about, that is for you each and every day. And yes, no matter how many times you run back to that corpse and you strap it back on. No matter how many times you go back to that grave that's full of your sins and you start digging them back up again. Who is there? Christ is. He's there to pry off that body of death once again from off your back. He's there by his Holy Spirit to remind you that these sins, they no longer have dominion over you. They are no longer your schoolmaster. They are no longer your tyrant. You're free from them. And I think the question, at least for me, is how many times will he do that? How often will he keep on reminding me of this? He's given us the answer. Matthew 18, verse 21 the apostle Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how oft shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. That was Jesus' words for inter-brother sort of conflict. How much more is his forgiveness for you and for me this morning? That's what I think Paul is getting at when he says in Romans chapter 8 that nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He means it. Not even your struggle with sin. My friends, if you believe in Jesus this morning, that struggle is part of the Christian life. It's part of what it means to be at war with this, what is natural to us. It's natural to think for ourselves, to think about ourselves, to think about our wants and cares and desires above anything else. But it's only by the word of grace that we are freed. And my friends, that's who Jesus is. He's the word of grace who assures us that we are already free from sin. Your sins have already been paid for my friends. You can live freely in the love of God in Christ. Because of who God is in Christ. And he is that for you. He is the deliverer from all of your sins. And from now till eternity. You know what we're going to be praying? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God. If you're 8 years old. Or 80 years old. This is the prayer of the Christian. It's not about needing him less. It's about becoming more and more aware of just how much we need him. That's the hope for these bodies of death. That are wracked with sin. That are so beaten down and weighed down by all of these iniquities. That we want to shake but we just can't seem to. There's a deliverer for you. And his name is Jesus. Jesus. And he's died wearing the weight of your sins. And he's been raised to new life. And so can you be this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.